0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 31st, 2022. Uh, Regular viewers and listeners to the show know that we've been doing a number of shows about what we might think of as the China question, although that may be a very Western biased oriented phrase. We did a show uh, actually last week uh, with a very distinguished historian from Columbia university in New York, uh, May Nye on the China question itself, the 19th century China question in America, in terms of the gold rush and the way in which Chinese people were Portrayed or perhaps misportrayed by White America, her book *The China Question: The Gold Rushes and Global Politics* was one of the books shortlisted for the very distinguished Cundill History Prize. Uh, and there's another book, also shortlisted for the Cundill Prize, which we're talking about today. Another book about China called *The Perils of Interpreting: The Extraordinary Lives of Two Translators Between*. Uh, Qing China and the British Empire. And in a sense, I guess it's uh, the China question, not for the 19th century, but for the 18th century, and not in America, but in China and in Europe, and particularly between China and the United Kingdom. The author uh, of the book is Henrietta Harrison. She's uh, a historian based in uh, Oxford, at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, and she's joining us now. Henrietta, congratulations on the book and the uh, the shortlisting for the, the Kundhill Prize, it's it's that's quite an honor, quite an accomplishment. Would it be fair to call your book um The China Question for the Late 18th century? Is that one way to get into it to make sense of it?
1: I suppose the people who are engaged who I'm writing about, they were interested in the China question of the 18th century. Though the book is isn't exactly about that, the book's more about what it means to be an interpreter and how how interpreters played a role in that question.
0: Well, let's, before we get to the interpreters and the whole question or the, the peril or the perils of interpreting, give us the historical context of the times, late 18th century China uh, and, of course, the British Empire, which was the dominant power in the world then.
1: Well, so... This In the 18th century, it's uh, this is before the British Empire is really the dominant power in the world. In the 18th century, we're talking well, about... The upcoming
0: China. power, shall we say. The
1: upcoming, exactly, the upcoming, the rising... Uh, ironically
0: America. enough, like China is today.
1: Yes. Though at this point, China is also in an expansionist. It's just coming to the peak of its great 18th century expansion um so, well it's it's reached that peak probably in the 1760s um so we're talking about a period where china um is for example at war with the gurkhas on the indian frontier um, so it, it's it's a huge state it's a very successful state it's been growing very rapidly since the 17th century and it's um, and it's what they call in chinese the the era, era of um grandeur and prosperity um, the, one of the great ages of Chinese history. It's a great age for art. It's incredibly wealthy and successful. So that's really what's going on in China. It's 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 an age of great prosperity and great success. Um, and then in Britain, I mean, other people will know more more than this than me about this, but but Britain is at this time. Um, expanding in India. It's, it's, not yet a, it's not yet fully dominant in India, but this is the, there's been the collapse of the, what's known as the first British Empire in the Americas, and then hmm. there is now the expansion of this Eastern British Empire in India, and that's what brings them into greater contact with the Chinese.
0: Yeah, you're very kind, Henrietta, the collapse of the British Empire. I don't think they were given a choice about collapsing. They were thrown out uh, of this country anyway you mentioned india and of course the east india company which was the commercial military vehicle for expansion in india we did a show with william dalrymple i'm sure you're very familiar with his work uh, the anarchy the east india company corporate violence and the pillage of an empire uh, the east india company also plays a role in the narrative of your book so China is at the height of its power. Britain is the coming power. That's the background to this book, the perils of interpreting. Uh, and they're all built. It's all built around the the personhood of George McCartney, who was what the the, the British ambassador to China. Is that correct?
1: Yes that's right he's the first person who the british appoint as ambassador to china he's actually from he's an, he's irish himself but he's um, going out there as the british ambassador
0: and was he schooled um, in chinese language culture how familiar was he with china
1: No, no, the British at this stage were not familiar with China. They they, they, they actually have to go to Italy to find someone who will be um, familiar with China. So um, McCartney is um, a liberal um, who has kind of lost his opportunities for patronage. And he is um, setting himself up as a professional diplomat. Um, And uh, so he's he's the. He he's an important person, but he's he's setting himself up. He's not yet. No one wants to be ambassador to China in the 18th century. It's a very very long journey. The previous chap they sent out had had died on the way. Um, it's long, it's dangerous, and um, real politics is going on in Europe. As Ms. McCartney aspires to be ambassador to Spain.
0: What was. Th- I mean the geopolitics now you only have to open one of these geopolitics magazines or periodicals and they all talk about China as the next power China China centric 21st century was there anyone in 18th century Europe talking about China what was the what was the conventional perception of China in 18th century Europe
1: well so Obviously, what's most famous is that from the 16th and late 16th, and strongly in the 17th century, there have been these massive, very important European Catholic missionary enterprises to China led by the Jesuits. And they build up an image of China as a model for Europe. So China was a model of a benevolent empire where where you have a wise emperor um, uh, who's who rules through sages so that they, they they learn about the Chinese examination system that selects people to be officials through examinations. The Europeans admire this greatly. And the Jesuits use um, China to promote ideas of benevolent empire in Europe. And that, as a result of that, many, many, um, and the Jes- many, many Europeans become fascinated by this. The Jesuits themselves in China and, and members of some of various other Catholic religious orders um, become great experts in Chinese culture. They learn to read and write Chinese, but they never transmit that linguistic knowledge back to Europe. Instead, what they do is write books that describe China But they're in complete control of the narrative, so to speak. And obviously, by the time you're getting to the late 18th century, the Jesuit order has had a lot of problems of its own. It's been it gets suppressed by the Vatican for a while. um, And that mission is really um, dying out. There were still a few um, Chinese uh, missionaries, European missionaries to China in Beijing when McCartney arrives. But it's not no longer the great days of the Jesuit mission.
0: Henrietta, excuse these dumb questions, but um, wasn't the 18th century also a time when it became increasingly self-evident of European military dominance of the world? Um, European colonization uh, was beginning in Africa. The Ottoman Empire was in significant decline. What was the military balance of power between China and Europe at the time?
1: Obviously, China is a long way from Europe. So the British and the Chinese are not really coming up against each other. It's quite clear when they do that British warships are a massive threat to China. So these British um, ships, that because um, Britain and France are in this ex- ongoing existential struggle which builds up, British warships are a really major issue. They're they're very highly developed, um, basically, floating gun batteries. However, China is a vast state with a vast army, and um, it's, it's not apparent to anybody that it's not clear whether the British would defeat the Chinese. At the point of the McCartney embassy, it's not yet clear, really, that the British are going to defeat... The various Indian states that they're fighting against. So, um, one of McCartney's previous postings had been as governor of Madras at a time when the Indians fought the uh, Chinese, when the Indians, the southern Indian state of Mysore, fought the uh, British to a standstill in a long, the second anglo-mysore war but it wasn't a success for the british and so that was his experience of dealing with these asian states which is that they were that they were at that period able to defeat the british that uh, and was, then, and,
0: and, 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 sorry go on
1: i said just that, that that's really we're coming to the end of that time but but at, in at the time of the embassy that is the state
0: and were there wise men in China or perhaps wise women in China who recognize that in spite of the fact that the 18th century appeared to represent the zenith of Chinese power and the Chinese state uh, that in the long run they were in trouble because Europe and Britain in particular was the coming power in technological military and economic terms
1: no so um one of the complications of the situation in China was that the dynasty was not Chinese. So the Qing dynasty, who ruled China from 1644, had come down from um, the, the northern steppes, um, from northern Central Asia, and those people were were ethnically what are called what are called Manchus. And they had a different culture, they had their own language, their own religion, and they um, very much controlled foreign affairs in this period. So while the, the Chinese, many, many Chinese officials were engaged in running the Chinese state, foreign affairs was not something that it was easy for ordinary Chinese people to write about. And indeed, there was nothing published. One of the subjects that I became very interested in as a result of doing this book is to wonder, what those people knew that they didn't write down, but they have almost no so the official Qing, the centre of the Qing state has only the most limited knowledge about Britain. However, there are on the South Coast the people who trade with Britain, the, the big merchants on the South Coast clearly have a, a very good knowledge of what's going on in Britain. But it's that is not the it's not out there, it's not published, there's very little knowledge.
0: And then um, the Qing dynasty, then you're suggesting, was a kind of from the steppes, a kind of Mongolian, perhaps dynasty. Was there unease, hostility between the Qing dynasty, which was what a, which, which acquired power th- through military means, and the Chinese people?
1: Yes, so obviously there is ongoing tension throughout the dynasty between the Qing. There were Mongols and Manchus and Chinese. Okay, so there are three different groups, um, but there is, but like previous Mongol dynasties, and, and you know, there's all there was always Chinese resistance. However, the great emperors of the 18th century, who were Manchu themselves and spoke that language, were the nevertheless deeply engaged in Chinese culture. And they were accepted by the vast majority of elite Chinese, but that doesn't mean that there weren't tensions and there weren't people out there in China who still regarded them as barbarians who had in, and foreign invaders. Moreover, the Manchus kept control of a lot of the very top posts, especially in the 18th century. They controlled the very top posts, and they and they continued to control the army through until the late 19th century.
0: Your book is about interpretation. It's about languages. Uh, how, how well could the the peoples of the Qing dynasty talked to the Chinese. Was there a need for interpreters there too? Or, or were the, the Qing people, were they uh, bilingual? Were they able to speak both Chinese? And what, what did the Qing speak, Mongolian?
1: No, they, they spoke Manchu, their, their language. They're the Manchu people. They have a Manchu language. Right. It's, written, it's written in Mongolian script. And when they came, those those Manchu people, when they came down from the steppes, that was what they spoke. However even by that time they were learning chinese those emperors like chenlong who's at the heart of my book he's you know he speaks we speaks multiple languages but he's he's obviously completely fluent in both manchu and chinese they have their um their documents in both languages so i mean people today manchu isn't basically hardly spoken today it's maybe yeah, one a lost
0: language just as are, are the Manchu people lost that they've been mixed no. up with?
1: No, no, no. There were lots of Manchu people in China. They're of, often very proud of being Manchu um, because they, you know, that it was a, they were a ruling group, um, and uh, they're, they're one of China's ethnic minorities.
0: Okay, so we've we've, we've covered the background. Uh, this guy George McCartney shows up. didn't want to be British. Uh, He didn't want to be the British uh, ambassador. He'd rather go to Spain, but he ended up in China. Nobody else wanted the job. Um, He shows up in Qing, China, at the the height of its dynasty. Uh, Then what, Henrietta? What's the foundations of this book, the perils of interpreting?
1: So what then happens is that the, the British turn up with a set of negotiating aims. And what they're hoping for is to get an island where they can trade. They're in very much the same mode that they were in as they're expanding into India. So they would like an island which would be a kind of commercial base for them where their own people would be in control. And they would like to have a resident, an ambassador at the the Qing court. Um, so that they could influence decisions they're very keen to reduce the tax rates on the trade and promote the trade and they also want to promote British exports which are at that stage they're mainly wanting to promote woolen man- woollens for Britain that being a very major export item for Britain at that time so um so they turn up with this negotiating
0: list and what uh, just just so what? I mean, I, we all want that. You know, Christmas is coming. Did they have threats or challenges? What, what, what was the, the spirit of the negotiation? What could they offer in return? Because clearly a Hong Kong, Singapore-style uh, offshore trading island was in their interest. What, what, what was in it for the Chinese, for the Qings?
1: That is a very good question that rather seldom gets asked of this event. There was basically nothing in it for the Chinese. The British said, obviously, more trade will be good for everybody. You know, they were.
0: uh, Yeah. But but what brought them down in the United States, Henry? Again, you're a great historian. You don't need me to tell you. This was the sort of the archaic nature of mercantile philosophy. I mean, mercantilism was a zero sum way of thinking about economics.
1: Exactly. And it was basically a a very little interest to the Chinese who had a vast state. I mean, that's not to say that the the Chinese didn't value the taxes they were bringing in. Uh, But They had at that stage a highly controlled state um, from what's now Guangzhou in the south of China, then called Canton. And that's where they're running the tea trade from. And they have all the tea trade is run from this one port, or all of it has to pass through this port. And the officials of that port collect the taxes on them. And a lot of that money goes directly to the emperor's privy purse, which is what he's using to fund wars and his various and temple building and all his various projects. So there was very little in it for um, the British. They always are. You mean consumers. for
0: the Chinese? For
1: the Chinese, I do mean for the Chinese. Uh,
0: so, again, I, I, from the Chinese point of view, how important was the export market, say, for, for tea? I mean, there's this famous British phrase. You've probably heard it more times than I have. All oh, I wouldn't do that for all the tea in China. Uh, yes. So, at, at what point were the? Because obviously, tea wasn't grown in in the United Kingdom, um, or actually in the United States. At what point did the Tea industry become an important market for the Chinese in Britain and in Europe generally.
1: Okay, so the tea industry, the tea production, um, uh, in the eight, in the sort of mid eighteenth century, was extremely high value. So that's why if you go to a museum, you might see um, if you went to the museums in Salem, which was a big center for the tea trade in in, in coming into the United States, you'll see lockable silver tea caddies. Mm. It's
0: it's a champagne of the 18th century. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It was an
1: incredibly expensive um, drink brought from a very long distance away. And it was a huge paraphernalia and it was very exciting. And the state took, a, the British state, I mean, this is something Americans know about, it took a very high cut on, 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 on. Right, right, right,
0: right, yeah.
1: Um, So, but, and the Chinese state was also taxing the trade very heavily. So both states have an interest and the British were trying to expand the trade. They thought they could keep the same or an increased tax trade by having, more tea coming in i mean so everybody's playing these games of trying to reduce tax and the chinese
0: state um was i mean the chinese economy was what a a, would it be fair to call it what a a capitalist or or a feudal economy what would be the best economic description of the chinese economy because presumably the state didn't own the tea plantations these were privately owned
1: Exactly. So it's China has an incredibly long history of being a very market based economy. You could sell basically anything. You could alienate land. Uh, you could sell your, your 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 wife and your children if you wouldn't if it needs be. It was a very highly marketized economy, not necessarily very nationally integrated. Um, mm. And but it's what was the, the tea trade was very advantageous for the provinces that grew tea. And the British were actually investing in that tea. So the East India Company was actually putting in money that was then going to, um, was moving through the system to develop tea plantations in, in, in South China. And those were all being owned and run by local Chinese people, but often with quite significant debts that that you could have traced mm. back if you've followed- the beginnings
0: of a kind of globalized or a colonial capitalism so let's get yeah. back to our, our friend uh, George McCartney he shows up as the ambassador he doesn't have much of a hand to play because it was not clear what was in it for the Chinese but nonetheless he insisted on negotiating this idea of an offshore trading port with the Chinese so then what
1: Okay, so actually they, the Chinese just wouldn't listen basically. So they, they, they take him on a lovely tour of their gardens. They bring down this guy, Somyun, who who is um, one of the emperor's uh, up and coming young men and who's just been up on the Russian border negotiating with the Russians. Because they also have a big trade in tea and in rhubarb, which was a very major export. Rhubarb roots were a very major export at that point. They have this big trade with the Russians, which they cut off over various border disputes. And Song Yun has just signed off on the second commercial treaty of Kyakta, and he then comes back to deal with McCartney. McCartney had previously been a British ambassador in Moscow, so he's. Um, they 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 talk about these things, but basically they they discuss it all. But the emperor, on principle, it appears, says no to every single item of the British requests. He then sends them off down south to um uh, to in the company of a couple of, um, first of Song Yun and then another very senior Manchu official who who do actually, in fact, negotiate with them on some of the details of the trade.
0: And then let's get to that. I mean, we've been circling around the heart of the book. Interpretation. How, how did McCartney talk to the Jing and vice versa? So they
1: only have two interpreters with them. And the book is a study of the lives of these two people. So one of them is a guy called Li Zibiao. And so he's a Chinese man um, yeah. who uh, studied, He's born into a Catholic family in far northwestern China, and he studied at, um, in Naples. So his family sent him to Italy at the age of 12 to study to be a, a Catholic priest. And he then spends the next 20 years of his life in Italy. He picks up Italian. His education is in Latin. McCartney is one of those people who's done the Grand Tour as as a young man. And he can speak Italian. And all the British can speak Latin because that's really the language of science in this period. So Lidzebio has been interpreted with has been trained with other Chinese people at this special college for the Chinese in Naples.
0: Now he was a kind of a Chinese aristocrat. I mean, presumably he must have had a very wealthy family to send him no. off to Italy or not?
1: No, he's the youngest son. No, he comes from a place called Uwe, which is up on the Silk Road. It's extremely remote. Um and his his father was probably a kind of medium well off um uh, merchant. His brother goes into the into the army, the Qing army, and is actually a very successful soldier, but really comes up from the bottom in the Qing army He starts off more or less as a private. And he goes all the way through and he ends up at the a sort of um, a, a second ranking general. Post in in the Qing Navy in fact so that they're they're, they're they're the kind of middle class really and what Qing was
0: this guy like I mean he must have been very unusual incredibly traveled so a man from the Silk Road who ends up as a 12 year old in in Italy
1: I know he was he was amazing and he must I I feel that he must have had very good supportive parenting in childhood because he was a he was a very um uh, everybody liked him all his life he was very sensible. He um, Everybody always felt that he was being completely sincere with them, even though sometimes he wasn't actually being completely sincere. So one of the things that he actually did was insert an item of his own into the negotiations.
0: Mm. He asked
1: for the Qing to um, support, uh, allow Catholicism, which was at that stage illegal for, for Chinese. Um,
0: so- well, given his time in Italy, that must have been something he felt quite strongly on. He's Did he experience? I mean, all, all we do these days, uh, Henrietta, is think about race and racism. Did he uh, experience much racism, do you think, in Europe? How was he treated as a, a, a man from China? There was, he must have been quite unusual.
1: So well, he was obviously unusual, though he was in a school, this this school in Naples, there were 10 or 12 other Chinese men. And if you go to Naples now, you'll find streets called the Street of the Chinese, which is where they walked up to their college. Um, So yes, they absolutely were unusual. But remember, there's still this this Jesuit idea of the Chinese kind of highly civilized model for Europe. And that went on for a long time in Naples because they had particularly um, Ancien Régime kind of, um government
0: and henrietta not everyone is obviously as erudite as you how in, in would you summarize the jesuits in both who they were and their significance at this point
1: oh, well actually at this point they've been they've, at the point of the embassy they've been abolished uh-huh. right. so, at, so uh, but
0: they were a sort of a proselytizing a catholic proselytizing force a, colo- a sort of a proto-colonial
1: they they've been um They'd gone with those early, if you think of the early Portuguese explorers, the early people who go out across the world, the Jesuits had gone with them to explore. And, um, and certainly in Asia, so obviously the situation in, in South America is different, but in, in what they did in China was that they they went to work at the court of the emperor. And they worked as painters and astronomers and clockmakers and musicians. And they were in the employ of the emperor and they basically did what he told them. Um, and first for the Ming dynasty. And then when the Ming fell and the Qing took over, they did that for the Qing dynasty. Um, uh, and then they write books about it for Europe.
0: OK, so we got one, one translator and then the other translator is entirely different. So George Staunton, was he the he's the second uh interpreter that yeah he's so the tell me about this guy i mean how did he learn chinese
1: so he go he goes on this embassy at the age of 12 so he, he his father is lord mccartney's kind of henchman assistant and um he his father is is educating um his little boy to be a 18th century prodigy he's going to be a kind of mozart of oriental languages
0: right he's, he's an a, orientalist which today carries all sorts of negative connotations, but I assume back then was seen very much in positive terms.
1: Yes. I mean, at, at, at this moment, he, he, he's going to be the first British person. He becomes the first British person to be able to seriously read and write Chinese. Um, Which is quite
0: an accomplishment. What was he like then? So he wasn't as sort of typically aristocratic as George McCartney, who simply didn't want to be in China in the first place.
1: Uh well actually George McCartney was was the son of an Irish MP. He was didn't wasn't born an earl, he made it himself.
0: Right. Um, but I'm saying that uh, but uh, Staunton Staun- wanted to be in China, presumably. He had an enthusiasm and an interest in the Chinese world, in culture father, and
1: politics. His father had been educated by those same Jesuits in France. His father was Irish Catholic, um, and this 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 he took this boy with him, he had a great George, younger George Thomas Staunton, his life was completely created by this very dominant parent. Um, and then after the embassy, George, so he learnt Chinese on the embassy, the Chinese priest, not just Li Zhou but the other Chinese priests they had with them taught him Chinese. Um, and he learned it as a 12 year old, he picked it up very fast because he was a child and also because he'd been made to speak Latin all his life. Um, and he then after the embassy goes back to China, um, to work for the East India Company and becomes very rich.
0: So the, the heart of the book is this relationship between Staunton and Ji Bao, is that right?
1: Uh, w- w- probably best to call him Lee, that's his surname.
0: Okay, Lee. So Lee and Staunton, this is, this is your way of looking at late 18th century China and Britain and this evolving relationship which will change dramatically in the 19th century.
1: Yes, because i so I hope what's been coming across is that at that moment in the eighteenth century, there's basically quite a lot of interest and enthusiasm on both sides, and then we' in seventeen ninety three when McCartney goes, but then around eighteen hundred things are transformed as Britain takes more power in India, you get much more of this racism coming up that's applied to Asiatics. Um, which is, includes India and China, and and also expansion of British warships off the coast of South China fighting against the French off the Chinese coast. And um, that's, so there's a big transition there, and what it seems to me is that that makes life impossibly difficult for the people who are being in the interpreters in between. that the, Because the two states become increasingly hostile, those two, those people who are in between get completely ground down and they get to the state where it's really too dangerous for them to speak out at all
0: and then the act of interpretation again there's the cliche that we we punish the bearer of bad news um what does your book reveal about the art or science of interpretation particularly at these rather fraught political moments
1: i think that interpretation is not just about words it's always, the interpreter is always partly negotiating. So, and that's particularly true in the 18th century, where in these, for the, often for these people, they're the only person present who can understand both languages. But also when they're interpreting, they're listening to what one side says and then speaking to the other side. So they're never going to interpret all the words. They've got to select what's the important thing and then persuade the other side of it.
0: So, so so. Very, was, so well, what you're saying was they. So there must have been political officials there, but Staunton and, and Lee were essentially talking to one another. That's what.
1: No, no, no. That So Staun Lee interprets for in 1911 in in 1793 the McCartney embassy, and um, Staunton becomes the interpreter in the in the. Um, he, he's a 12-year-old. You can't interpret a diplomatic embassy when you're a 12-year-old. So the book goes on to talk about Staunton's role in the next British embassy, the Amherst embassy in 1816, and his role as an interpreter in the early 19th century as Britain begins to put pressure, military pressure on China. And the situation between the Chinese and the um, British becomes much more tense.
0: So what, what's the comparison between Lee and Staunton in terms of uh, their interpretation. Uh...
1: So my my argument actually is that the two of them are interpreting in rather similar styles. They both interpret in ways that will make um, the the other side uh, move towards them. They both try to persuade the other side. And then in the later in the 19th century, you'll get other interpreters Um, coming in who make Chinese sound much more different and alien. So when Staunton, for example, translates the Chinese phrase that country's king into English, he writes His Majesty King George III. So he makes the Chinese seem very acceptable in a British diplomatic context. And that's something he learns from Li Zi and from this earlier generation and something that later British interpreters absolutely won't do. So it's partly about the style of interpreting, which creates, if you interpret in a very hard line, word for word way, what will happen is that you're likely to get much more antagonistic language. And you can imagine the same thing with Xi Jinping today. If we interpret Chinese Marxist jargon in in purely um, uh, exactly word for word, it sounds very strange in English. And that was the same thing with the way the Chinese talked using a lot of Confucian language in the 18th century. Um, And Staunton and Lee make, they smooth it all over. But by the mid-19th century, the British aren't willing to do that.
0: Yeah, I I want to get to G at the end of this conversation, uh, Henrietta, but um, are you suggesting then that the art or the science of interpretation really reflects power, and at the beginning these two empires, these two cultures, civilizations were relatively equal, uh, and there was an equality perhaps, or a tolerance, uh, a symmetry, a sympathy in the interpretation, and the representation of both sides, and as it became increasingly clear that the the British were the the powerful uh, state and that China was in decline, um, that the power of interpretation changed as well? Uh,
1: it's not so much that the... Pa- that I think interpreting is always powerful. It's more that the interpreters themselves right. are, are more warning people that it's not a good idea to remove all the people in between, in the middle between these two states.
0: So let's... And you you brought up Xi Jinping. We we did a show uh, at the beginning of the month with a couple of German journalists uh, representing him as the most powerful man in the world. Uh, Obviously, the China question from the 18th century became the China question of the 19th century, then the 20th century of Mao, and the 21st century, it's an entirely different question. What is your book in broad terms? How can your book help us with this increasingly complicated and some people fear even existential relationship between the west particularly the united states and china
1: well i think it what it shows us as a sort of moral for today is that it's crucially important that those people that if you're an interpreter neither side quite trusts you because you never belong fully to one side or the other nobody ever quite knows where it where your internal balance is you've got to be, if you're a Chinese person who studied in, in Italy or an, a British child who spent a lot of time in China, people don't know which side you're really for. And that's, that's part of being an interpreter. It's part of being one of those people in the middle. And that's a really important position. And it's a position that is constantly at risk, because people say, well, you're not supporting us you're not really on our side. You're going for the other side. So I guess the moral of the story is that we should listen to the people in the middle, and we should protect them and not, you know, potentially treat them as traitors, which is what happens, for example, to George Thomas Staunton, who ends up the the the, the um the then Qing Emperor, the Jiaqing Emperor, um, ends up issuing an edict against him and saying that if he the um that if he does anything wrong, he will be sent into exile, not sent back to Britain, but sent into exile in China, um, which obviously is the end of his career in China. And Li Zibiao ends up um, in hiding because he's a Catholic priest and it's illegal, but also Catholicism becomes more and more problematic as the tension between Europe and the Western China grows. And he ends up in hiding in a tiny village and the Chinese lose that expertise they had because the people they, they have there who could be in the middle um, are basically, it's too dangerous.
0: And of course, the long-term consequences are the opium wars of the 19th century, the decline of China, the arrival of the West in all sorts of different ways. Uh, how much of these negotiations, in retrospect, can be seen as the precursors of all that?
1: Oh, well, the, the, these, the, the McCartney embassy has always been told as the precursor of the Opium War. And this is a British story that they tell at the time. And that's told really from 1838, when the Opium War starts onwards. And they say, right, well, we we sent an embassy to China in 1793 to ask for equal diplomatic relations. and We sent another in 1816. And the Chinese refused to receive them equally. So now we have a right to go to war with you. Um, and that they, the, the McCartney embassies used to justify the opium wars. I actually think that's an extraordinarily bad way of picking up the McCartney embassy, but it appealed to Chinese uh, revolutionaries in the early 20th century because they wanted to condemn the Qing dynasty. Um, so back in the early 20th century, it was quite promoted by on the Chinese side too. So this has become a very dominant story. Uh, Personally, I think that the McCartney embassy needs to be seen as part of a kind of 18th century world where where, um, where we are seeing the beginnings of globalization, but there's still a lot of influence from that 17th century Jesuit moment. There's still a lot of respect on both sides. And it's that expansion of British power in India that really makes a big change.
0: Yeah, the uh, I mentioned the the Dalrymple book. Um, we had him on the show. The Anarchy Should Be Read, I think, probably with yours. Of course, ultimately, the British got what they want. They got Hong Kong. Um, yeah. uh, does that also explain, do you think, in the longer term, as historians help us to establish longer term perspectives, the particular sensitivity of Hong Kong and China in the West?
1: Well, obviously, I mean Hong Kong was was was, was occupied and taken during the Opium War and, and for precisely that reason it was exactly what they wanted. They had always wanted an island off the Chinese coast. Well they'd hoped to get Macau, actually, originally, um, which had been which had a Portuguese community and was partially run by the Portuguese. Um, but but Hong Kong was one of the places they were, were interested in. And obviously in, in, in the Opium War, they seize it. And this is the, this is the background that makes that such a complex issue um, for China today.
0: Well, that's complicated and important. The perils of interpreting the extraordinary lives of two translators between um, uh, Qing, uh, Qing China and the British Empire. Really important and interesting history for people interested in Late eighteenth uh, century, early 19th century, European and Chinese history. And congratulations, Henrietta on um, on getting shortlisted for the uh, Kundhill Prize. It's quite an honor. Uh, what else would you suggest people read about China, or otherwise you're a professional historian, of course. What do you enjoy reading?
1: Well, I enjoy reading all sorts of things, but as I've been talking to you, I have been feeling that the book you should read is um, Jonathan Spence, The Memory Palace of Mateo. Yes, which yes. You, which maybe you did once read long ago, but it's a wonderful, wonderful book um, about one of the, the first, Matteo Ricci, the first um, Jesuit um, uh, missionary. Yeah,
0: well, uh, is, is Spence, he's still around, right?
1: I think so, yes.
0: Yeah. Well, if, he's, if you're out there, Jonathan Spence, we'll have you on the show.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book and really inspirational.
0: And anything um, else on your reading list, Henrietta? What do you enjoy?
1: Uh, well, the other book that I, I thought would be, would be fun go, going with this is Max Oitman's, um recent book, Forging the Golden Urn, which includes a lot of the same characters. And it's about how the Qing um, uh, came to control the politics of reincarnation in Tibet. How they um, construct that urn, out of which the, the communist Chinese state still uses to um, uh, to select um, incarnate lamas, um, to select the, the, the Dalai Lama and other dignitaries in Tibet. Um, and so, he, but it's these same people. It's Chen Long. At the same time, he's doing this embassy. He's also making arrangements. Um, to control who gets these really important political positions in Tibet, um, which are, are all for um, Buddhist reincarnation, so people who are great Buddhist figures. And he sends Song Yun, the same guy who was up on the um, Russian frontier in Kyakta, off to Tibet to manage this process.